You can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. As you guys have heard, we're going to do an entire month series on just slowing down and spending time and thinking about what it means to be a part of this body of believers, this local church. What is the vision and the mission that God has called us to? We say often that we are disciple-making disciples in a church-planting church, and that sounds nice, it sounds slick, it goes on the top of a bulletin very nicely, but this is a chance to pause and pray and open scripture and say, what, what do we mean by that? What does it mean to make disciples? And as we're going to see over the course of this month, when we say discipleship, we mean leading friends into Christ. And when we say being a disciple, that means living with this power, this union in Christ. And all of that we'll start to talk about and think about over the course of this month. But today, we need to begin where everyone's story of faith begins in Christ, and that is at our conversion and call. And of the many places in the Bible to see this, Luke chapter 5 is one of my favorites. So let's read about Peter's first encounter with Jesus. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. This is all Jesus. Jesus, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep, and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets." And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, from now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would know what it means to be a believer who owns sin, real, deep, abiding sin in our hearts, to come to you in repentance and faith, and to receive afresh daily the good news of the gospel that you cleanse sin and put us in a right standing with God. I pray that for our non-Christian friends here. I pray that for our Christian friends here, that we would grow up together in these precious truths of the gospel, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, this is the day that Peter first meets Jesus. How fascinating that we actually get the account of that story, and I've thought about this meeting a lot. Because we know that Peter grew up in the family fishing business. He's done it all his life. He's doing it now. And if he hadn't met Jesus on the beach of the Sea of Galilee this day, in this spot, in this way, he probably would have gone on to be a fisherman and he would have died at a ripe old age as a moderately successful man in the fishing business and his kids and his grandkids would have been fishermen too and all would be well. 
But Peter encounters Jesus and his life is changed forever. He can't take this back. Peter is going to have a hard life now. He's going to follow Jesus and I think some of his friends and family won't understand what he's doing. Some of them will be angry at him and what he is doing. That He's going to spend time away from home preaching the gospel, away from his wife and his kids. He's going to be threatened. He's going to be beat up. He's going to be thrown in prison. And we know from church history, ultimately he will be crucified upside down in the city of Rome all because he met Jesus this day at this spot while minding his own business. Can you imagine what's in store for this man? Do you think there were moments in Peter's life when he regretted this ministry call, like that the cost was too great? I think so. I think he probably saw other believers and what they were doing and said, Lord, can I do what that guy's doing and that girl's doing. Can I have that call? I think there were days that he regretted the ministry that God gave him. But do you think that for all his suffering, there was a moment that Peter regretted meeting Jesus himself? I don't think so. Jesus gave him a bunch of opportunities to leave and he said, who else has the words of life? I'm gonna follow you and you alone. And that's what Jesus does. He's in the business of drawing souls to himself, a soul and then a family and then a genealogy in happy salvation to him and then turning us back around to do his work. To be called to be a disciple is also to be called to do God's work. Our conversion is also our great commission. We get God's marching orders to do his work. And we see that so clearly in this text. And I want to point us to just a few points here. Number one from Luke 5, the kind of laborers Jesus is looking for. Like, who is he looking for when it comes to calling people to himself and sending them out in his mission? Who are those laborers? And then what kind of labor is he after? And then what kind of fruit will he bring? But we're going to spend almost all of our time on point number one, the kind of laborers Jesus is looking for. And the answer to that is prepare to be underwhelmed. Prepare to be underwhelmed by the kind of laborers God is looking for. I say that about laborers. I say that when it's my turn to cook family dinner. Prepare to be underwhelmed. Like when you see it, you'll notice there's not much here. That's true of Peter. That's true of you. That's true of me. Now, poor Peter, he's exhausted when we meet him in this text. Luke chapter 5, he's been fishing all night. He has caught nothing. He's on the bank now, and he's cleaning his nets, and he's licking his wounds, and he's probably dreaming about a little bit of breakfast and a bed, and up walks Jesus and jumps in his boat. Now, if you've got this worldview that has been shaped by a secular culture that all things are chaos and coincidence, then man, this is a one in a million chance that Jesus meets Peter and it has this freakish outcome. I mean, this is just crazy by anybody's account. But if you subscribe to this biblical worldview of the absolute 
providence of God in all things, that in him alone we live and move and have our being, that he really does uphold the universe and all its events by the word of his power, that Jesus will be able to say to his heavenly father at the end of his life, I haven't lost a single one that you, Father, gave me to begin with. Well, then this scene is just another day in the office of God's sovereignty in everyday moments. Peter doesn't leave a minute too early. Jesus doesn't arrive a minute too late. And a soul that has been chosen for glory from the foundations of the world and prepared for this moment is here. And really, once Jesus shows up, all that's left is the irresistible kindness of God that will lead Peter to repentance. But we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves because before we have repentance that leads to salvation, we need to have an acknowledgement of sin. And before we can acknowledge sin, we need to have a true encounter with Jesus. So that's what's happening here. Jesus walks up, he meets Peter, he borrows his boat, he preaches all morning to the crowds, and then he turns to Peter and something crazy happens. He says to Peter in verse four, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Peter is so quick to respond, Lord, we've already tried that, we've already done it. You ever do that with Jesus when he is calling you to do something? Are you quick to respond, Lord, I've already tried that and this is how much it costs and this is why it doesn't work and this is why it's not a good idea? Yeah, Peter is doing that with Jesus. No matter, Jesus says, this is what we're going to do. We're gonna put out into the deep. Now, I want us to linger for a moment on that line, put out into the deep, because right now we're in the shallows at the Sea of Galilee and it's safe in the shallows. We can have this mirage of control in the shallows, but not in the deep. Anything can happen in the deep with Jesus. You go out into the deep, you go out into the Sea of Galilee, you get out into the middle of that thing, and you might find yourself in a storm that will threaten to take your life. You get out into the deep with Jesus in the Sea of Galilee and you might see a herd of pigs bobbing in the water who have had the legion demons thrown into them. You go out into the deep in the Sea of Galilee with Jesus and he might actually ask you to step out of the boat and walk on water. It is not safe in the deep with Jesus. Crazy things can happen there. And for some of us, it's better to stay in the shallows. If you're here this morning and you have a sense that you trust Jesus and what he's doing and where he's leading you, and you're ready to let go of the control that you never actually had to begin with, I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, let's go to the deep with Jesus. That was terrible, (laughs) y'all. Turn to your neighbor and say, let's go to the deep with Jesus. There's just a few of you here. But if you came this morning for a free cup of coffee and a bulletin to show your mother that you attended church and you have no intention of following Jesus, turn to your neighbor and say, no thanks, I'll stay in the shallows. Okay. Let's go to the deep with Jesus. We get in the boat, we go out there, and an absolute 
miracle happens. I told you this was going to happen. I told you if we went with them, something crazy was going to happen. They put down their nets and they take up this enormous catch of fish. And Peter sees this and he can't understand how this is possible. And he has such a startling reaction to Jesus in verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And it's like, wait a minute. How do we get from catching fish to Peter's sin? What's going on? It's kind of like when I get home from work and I say to my kids, how was your day? And they say, we didn't mean to do it. (laughs) You didn't mean to do what? Your day? What are we talking about now? The human heart is a fascinating thing, is it not? Romans 1 gives us a little map of a heart that We take a lifetime to understand, and Romans 1 tells us, intuitively, all of us know that we have been created by a God, and a God who is holy and right and just and true, and we know that we resist this God and doing what he calls us to, but instead live in our own way, and none of us need to be taught what guilt and shame is because we intuitively feel from an early age when I sin and resist and lie and have hateful thoughts, I better keep those covered up and quiet because they offend a holy God. Nobody has to be taught that. It dwells right below the surface, being pressed down behind a smiling Sunday face. And all it takes is Jesus doing something powerful. And for Peter, it just bursts forth in his life. He can't even hold it. That's why our culture works so hard to domesticate Jesus. I mean, if we could just take the Jesus of the Bible who's ascended and reigning from on high and we can just pull him down into this purple-sashed puppet who will endorse any kind of lifestyle I choose to live, well, then I can be safe around this Jesus, and then this Jesus can be a banner for my lifestyle, but that is only wishful thinking, and you will not get that when you press your nose into this black and white living text of the Bible. The presence of Jesus is a powerful thing. You get in Jesus' presence and he has a tendency to rip the roof right off of a religious facade and expose our sin, even expose our self-righteousness and our religious piety and our motions and show us for who we really are. And that is a terrifying thing. When Peter encounters the real Jesus, not the fake Jesus, He doesn't say, gee, thanks for the fish. He says, get away from me. When the crowds on the other side of the Lake of Galilee see Jesus cast out the demons and into the herd of pigs, they don't say, wow, that was a cool trick. They say, get away from us. Get out of this place. It's a terrifying thing to encounter this Jesus with a knowledge of our sin. Now, I don't want to presume that everyone here is born again, a believer who is trusted in Christ. And I don't want to presume that everyone here has this assurance of their salvation that we talked about, Devin talked about last week from 1 John chapter 5, that can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus covers our sin because it gets tricky. 
especially if we're raised in the church, if we have surrounded ourselves with Christians, if we come to Christian worship services like this one, we're around Christianity, but that doesn't make us a Christian because we still have this sin in our hearts that's not atoned for, and we don't know what to do with it, and so we put on a polite and smiling face and try to suppress it within our hearts. I was in the Middle East a couple of weeks ago, and every day I was served uh, Nescafe coffee, which is terrible. It's like instant coffee mixed with powdered cream, and you can't separate them, and that's all you got. So I had my own Starbucks via packets, and I poured my last one on the last day in my cup, and I went up and I got some hot water, and I just smell this steaming goodness and turn around, Somebody smacks my shoulder. The whole cup of black gold just goes out and lands on the back of this woman's dress. And she turns around and she doesn't speak English and I don't speak Arabic. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. And she's so gracious. No problem, no problem. I'm like, it is a problem. It's a huge problem. And because I can't say in Arabic, you are covered in coffee. She just goes around throughout the cafeteria greeting people, smiling, shaking hands, and when she turns around, she is just covered in coffee. I think that's what we do with each other, right? As long as we keep this clean facade, as long as I only confess to you what you're willing to confess to me, as long as I only confess safe things with you that are respectable sins in the church, then I can keep this covering and you can keep this covering until one of us turns around and the other realizes (laughs) your back is completely covered, stained, and I see you for who you are. There is a depth of sin within us. I think that's why it's so powerful to see this happen in Peter's life because Peter was a good guy. He grew up with religious parents. He grew up going to synagogue every Saturday. He grew up with people around him who thought he was a decent person. He grew up probably with not a single scandal in his life. I mean, we don't read any dirt on Peter. No adultery, no drugs, no DUIs. We don't hear anything about this guy. He is squeaky clean. And I bet his friends and neighbors saw that clean front and that clean face of Peter and thought he was a really good person and they wanted their kids to grow up and be religious like Peter. And I bet they would have been shocked to hear what he did on that boat that day to throw himself at Jesus' feet and to acknowledge himself a sinful man. But in that moment, Peter's not really concerned about the crowd and his neighbors and what his parents are going to hear and what James and John, his business partners, are doing. He has true business to do with Jesus. He has sin in his heart that has not been atoned for and he comes running to Jesus and I think he's even confessing the sin of self-righteousness. Not the sin of scandal, not the sin of overt and outright rebellion, but the sin of being the elder brother, this self-righteous man in a religious context, and he confesses that to Jesus. And think about our context in our southern culture where it's polite and good to be a religious person, and there are nice, polite, 
church-going people whose sin is not atoned for and they will be separated from God forever because they were depending on being nice, church-going, polite people and that is not the gospel. The gospel begins with a deep, earnest understanding of our sin. So I want to invite you, friends, to join me as I struggle to daily take an honest, long look in the perfect mirror of God's law, His righteousness and the ways in which I fail to measure up to that and own and be honest with the deep sin inside of me running to Jesus for His lavish forgiveness. If you do that for the first time, Acknowledge your sin and trust in Christ. That's conversion. If you're doing that for the 1,000th time as a believer, that's deeper discipleship. Deeper and deeper into owning sin and seeing the beauty of the gospel. I read recently a story about C.S. Lewis that I, I didn't know. That there was a point in his life, later in his life, and it comes out in his letters that All the while he had been a believer, but he had this deep moment of truly understanding the depth of his sin and the gracious forgiveness of Christ for him. He wrote in a letter, I believed that I believed that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but now in a special way, I know that all the more deeply. What's amazing about that story is C.S. Lewis had already written most of his books He had already done most of his ministry. He had already lived most of his life. He wasn't going to live much longer after that. And still, even so, God was not done with a man like C.S. Lewis. He was ready to remove layer and layer and layer and show this man the depth of his sin so that the beauty of Christ and the gospel would shine all the brighter. A church that owns real deep raw sin in repentance and receives God's lavish, undeserved mercy in faith is a powerful thing in Jesus' hands. That's a powerful thing because that's the gospel that Jesus has come to save sinners. We're going to talk about evangelism. We're going to talk about it as the mission of the church. And I've heard evangelism described as one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. Have you guys heard that illustration? I think that's a great metaphor. But what happens if the first beggar hasn't really found and enjoyed bread for himself? What if we sent out a room full of beggars that aren't eating on this bread of life deeply and we send ourselves out eager to share this message with a world and we haven't found bread ourselves? Come join our religion. You can show up on Sunday morning and pretend that everything's okay and you can be shamed into doing Christian ministry and we'd love to have you on Sunday. See you there. That's a hungry beggar trying to tell another beggar what to do. Friends, this is bread. Throwing ourselves daily on the mercy of God in Christ and finding the smiling face of our Heavenly Father who loves us, joins Himself to us, and commissions us. That's the kind of laborer that Jesus is looking for. That's the kind of laborer Jesus will use 
in his kingdom. Not the person that comes with the answers, not the person that comes with self-righteousness, not the person that comes with the right gift mix, but like Peter in this moment, humbled before Jesus, clay to be formed by him. That's a powerful thing. If you hear anything about the vision of Colaprez and where God is calling us, hear this gospel of grace again. These are the laborers that Jesus chooses. If that's the laborer, then very quickly, this is the labor that Jesus is after. As Jesus draws Peter in, he gives him a job to do right away. He says famously to him, verse 10, do not be afraid, from now on you will be catching men. Yesterday, Peter was a fisher of fish. Today, he's going to be a fisher of men. Yesterday, Peter's story was his own. Today, his story is wrapped intimately into Jesus' story. Yesterday, Peter was using his unique gifts and abilities and personality to do his work and his thing. But today, God has converted him and he's not changing his personality or giving him a different Myers-Briggs. He is using the person that he has made in Peter to then be empowered to do his work. Every single one of us that is called to faith is now called to the Great Commission. Our conversion and our call go hand in hand. If you are born again, you have work to do in the kingdom. That's going to look different for every single one of us. In fact, I think our whole relationship together is finding out what it looks like to go deeper in Jesus and then live out of that depth in Jesus with the work that he's given us to do. But there will not be a single born again soul in this room who could say, I don't participate in disciples making disciples because every one of us shares a call at our conversion that we join this kind of work. That's the laborer. That's the labor. What is the fruit that Jesus will bring? And in short, our passage says, like a bunch, like a bunch of fruits. I think Jesus's miracle does two things. I think it snaps Peter to attention and works to bring him to his conversion, but I also think it presents this powerful metaphor for the kingdom that I don't think Peter, James, and John soon forgot afterwards. And the metaphor goes like this. Peter, all night long, in his own strength, with all of his expertise, in the right place at the right time, equals no fish. But Peter, with Jesus even if it's the wrong place, the wrong time, the wrong expertise, equals so many fish that the boat begins to sink. Jesus is overwhelmingly lavish with his miracles and his fruit. It's not enough in this passage for him to give Peter enough fish, just a day's worth of fish. He gives him so many fish that the boat is going to sink. It's not enough for him to feed the 5,000. He gives so much fruit, food that you have 12 baskets left over. It's not enough for him to provide for the widow of Cain to support her in some kind of welfare. He raises her son from the dead so that she can have him back, which is her love and her livelihood. Jesus is lavish with his miracles. Hear this, church. Where Jesus is absent in busy ministry. He's not here. It's a hungry beggar talking about a religion of piety where he's absent from busy ministry, it will be long nights of no fish. But where Jesus is present 
and his spirit is pulsing, even if it's a room full of ugly, nasty, selfish sinners, there will be a lavish, overwhelming, miraculous, stupendous work of his kingdom because that's the business that Jesus is in. His work, his church, his kingdom, not ours. Let's pray together. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come and do this work among us to drive us deeper into this gospel of grace that we might know that we are true sinners and that through that knowledge, your grace and goodness shines all the brighter. And would you also then lead us out in that same gospel of grace to share with one another what it means to have this new life in Christ. Do this in us, change us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.